0: so um, those of you who are here the first hour, first hour I, I trust you'll see some of the verses and themes and some of the things that we consider this morning um, that will resonate you know, all, all the more so in light of, of how God has dealt with the church in history past. Well, it's with that said, if you could open your Bibles to James 5, verses 1 through 6, James 5, 1 through 6, and let me read these six verses to you this morning. James writes this, Come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasure in the last days. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been he- withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of, the, of Sabot. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Years ago, I had a job as an accounting assistant at a bed-leaning shop in downtown Los Angeles, and and I've had some uh, pretty bad jobs in, in the past, but this was by far my worst experience. The CEO of the company and the controller directly above me had uh, vicious, violent, hair trigger tempers. It was common for me to witness our, uh, the president, the founder of the company, yelling at, and cursing at Various employees in front of everybody, driving them to tears. My sales manager would come out of the bathroom with tear-soaked eyes, trying to control her emotions. My controller would insult me on a daily basis, and approximately, it came out, maybe every three days, he would spend at least a few minutes just cursing me out. The turnover was very high, as you can imagine, maybe average six months to maybe a year. The pay was the bare minimum for everybody with empty promises of more compensation. Uh, The the owner of the company had a knack for finding employees in desperate situations and hiring them for a while before they would quickly leave to find saner circumstances. And, And many of you have also had this experience of working under a nightmare kind of supervisor. You've had these types of jobs in the past. You're in one of those jobs currently where your authorities take advantage of you, where they mistreat you, where they disrespect you, where they even oppress you unjustly. Sinful and corrupt authority abound in our fallen world. But this morning, James has an encouraging word for those of us who are working in these harsh conditions. James will encourage those who are under the brutality of the often rich and powerful with the reality of divine justice. Today's passage is intended to give us the strength to bear up under oppressive authority because of the reality of God's perfect justice. And after taking a a couple weeks off uh, for Easter Sunday and, and one Sunday explaining the theology of the Passover, we return to our study of James. If you can remember, the main theme of James is the practice of wholehearted Christianity. James wants to emphasize to the church that Christianity is a religion of the heart. It's a, it's a religion of the soul. And the worship of Yahweh has always been that way, by the way, the greatest of the greatest commandment of Scripture was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But that has never been actually the case for God's people until the church was born on on Pentecost. Until they were given the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and a new heart according to the new covenant. And when Christ rose from the dead, this new era, this new age, began, and the greatest testimony on the earth for the past 2,000 years that this new era has in fact begun is the church's wholehearted love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a wholehearted love for each other. That the kingdom begins with people's hearts submitted to the king. And that submission must be a wholehearted submission. And so the letter of James began, if you remember, in chapter 1 with the call to rejoice in our trials. Trials are the, the, the instrument that God uses to refine the purity of our character. We are to persevere under a trial with a consistent faith depending on God through prayer, never doubting that God is always good all the time. Anybody can say they trust God in trials and hard times. Anyone can pretend they know God, but a true Christian, uh, James says, is a doer of the word. True, wholehearted religion is seen in the way we, we, we talk to each other, our words, our speech. It's manifested in the way we treat the poor like uh, orphans and widows. It's demonstrated in the way we keep ourselves holy and, and unstained by the world. In chapter 2, James, re, James uh, reminded us that a wholehearted Christian does not discriminate. We, we love other believers not based on their income or, or their skin color or their ethnicity or what they can do for us, but because we are, to, we are commanded to love neighbors as ourselves. To be indifferent to the needs of the poor is to demonstrate, that a, demonstrate a faith that is without works. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. True saving faith produces good works. In chapter 3, James taught us that a wholehearted Christian possesses two things, a mouth under total submission to the lordship of Christ, and number two, a, a heavenly wisdom from above. The first half of chapter 4 featured the heart of the letter of James, and it was... All about the heart what divides our hearts for god most often friendship with the world we were instructed that the prerequisite for more grace to overcome our love affair with this world system is humility and then james defined humility for us that humility revolves around our posture toward god if we refuse to submit to god we can't have humility and then we can't have more grace and Chapter 4 finally ended, ended with a, a warning to the wealthy about making plans without God in the center of the picture, to have God-centered ambition, to plan your life committed to pleasing Him in all things. As we get to chapter 5, 1 through 6, well, you're going to notice that it is, it is a similar theme. Both passages have to deal with well-to-do people. James 5, 1 begins with the same words chapter 4.13 began with the words come now to, to call attention to what James is about to say, but in, in spite of these similarities between the two passages, there is a big difference. And the difference is this: In chapter four, the last five verses, it was addressed to believers, but in today's passage, it is addressed to unbelievers. If you notice In the last five verses of chapter 4, there was a call to repentance. In chapter 5, in these first six verses, however, there is only a pronouncement of judgment. In chapter 4, the five last verses, James was targeting the merchant class. If you were a merchant and you were a believer, the temptation to love the world would be very high. But in chapter 5, James is specifically targeting wealthy landowners. And this was a a class of people frequently criticized in the Old Testament. They were uh, uh, harshly condemned in Jewish literature literature, and even in the wider Greco-Roman world for their greedy acquisition of land and their exploitation of those forced to work on the land for them. The socioeconomic conflict between these two classes was acute in the first century world and James addressed here reflects the situation accurately but all this begs the question if james is not directly writing to believers in these verses then what is the point of the passage if none of the people he is addressing are in the audience where this letter would be publicly read what is what is the point of me preaching the the passage when it is about the people around us and not here in this building? And the answer is that while it is true that James is not writing to believers in the church directly, he is, however, writing for believers in the church. How so? He is encouraging the saints who are experiencing oppression that their tormentors are going to experience Perfect justice in other words you can be encouraged when you're in the middle of mistreatment when you are undergoing injustice when you are taken advantage of by your authorities or by your employers or by your government leaders you can be encouraged in those times because real eternal divine justice is coming for your enemies and this is a common plight for all of them. We had a couple of friends over yesterday for dinner, and both of them were sharing, one of our friends was sharing just how bad her supervisor was And I listened, and, and sadly, in light of the text, I, I should have said, well, uh, you know what James says in the beginning of chapter 5? There are comforting verses for us. You know. And in the next six verses, we're going to present, James will, why God will judge the rich and powerful. Why he will judge the rich and the powerful. And let me give you those four reasons at the outset. Number one, God will judge the rich for hoarding their wealth. God will judge the rich for robbing the poor. God will judge the rich for living self-indulgently. And God will judge the rich for murder. Verses one through three, James tells us the Lord will judge the rich for hoarding their wealth. I have two boys, and there's a lot of toys in our, in our living room, and, and, and the rule is, is that uh, the, the one, the boy that, that touches the, the toy first, if he, gets, if he starts playing with the toy first, he has the right to play with that toy until he's finished with that. And it usually works out, But sometimes one of my boys will be playing with a set of toys. With, for example, multiple action figures or multiple playing cards. And and as he's doing that, the other boy will sometimes ask his brother to play with just one of those ten figures. Or just one of those cards out of the set of twenty cards. And sure enough, the other boy will not want to share. And even though the rule is first come, first serve, I always get discouraged when one brother hoards his wealth from the other brother. But the discouragement that comes to a parent when siblings do not share their Legos is nothing compared to the response that God will Show to the rich who hoard their possessions. Just as believers were called to rejoice in their sufferings at the beginning of James, this anticipated joy that marked the beginning of the, this letter is matched at the end of the letter by an anticipated sorrow for the rich who hoard their belongings. James begins chapter 5, five verse 1, with these words. Come now, you rich. As I mentioned, the rich that James is addressing, they are not among the readers of the letter. They are rather wealthy non-believers who are oppressing the poor of the church. And so this, this passage is not directed toward the reform of the rich. Rather, it is a warning of certain judgment. Instead of the comfortable indifference, the wealthy have toward the poor, instead of the pleasure they derive from their wealth, instead of all the satisfaction their mansions and their caviar and champagne lifestyle give them, instead, James says, come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Instead of laughter, there should be weeping. What kind of crying? The, the howling kind. This word howling in the Greek, is a, it's an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like what is being described. Allah There's this howling sound. And James puts on the mantle of an Old Testament prophet here as he, as he predicts judgment. This word in the... LXX, the Greek Old Testament, is a a word found only in the prophets of the Old Testament and always in the context of judgment. It means to to cry with a loud voice. The more it hurts, the louder you cry. The more, the deeper the pain, the more more shrill the cry of the expression of the anguish. You go to Isaiah chapter 13. Turn there with me if you could. Isaiah, we're going to be flipping around here this morning. In in the LXX, the Greek Old Testament that was very common in the first century, that word for howl, you you find it in Isaiah 13, as in that first verse, the the first word there, Isaiah says, wail. My translation it says, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and labor pangs will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. But the stars of heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant, and will bring low the lofty pride of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of the ophir. I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like that, like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be pierced through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their infants also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their, Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Isaiah here is talking about the same day that James is referred to, referring to in chapter 5, a day known as the Day of the Lord. And this is the last day of history when Christ establishes His kingdom on earth while at the same time punishing all of Jesus' enemies in hell forever. It will be the day of final salvation for his people, and it will be the day of final judgment for his enemies. And so James, he looks down through the annals of time with divine foresight, and he sees this dark hurricane cloud of the day of the Lord about to strike down the rich and powerful. Go back to James 5. James uses the word "miseries" in verse one in the plural to accentuate this misery. That the tears James is talking about, with respect to the rich, they are not the tears of the penitent, but instead they will be the tears of the damned. Many years ago, when I was in, I was in Korea, and I was driving in a car by the one of the major U.S. military bases in Seoul, and and outside stood a group of mothers, of, of sons who had died from various training accidents serving with the American soldiers, and these poor mothers wanted more information. They were They were protesting for some sort of investigation, maybe some sort of reparation, and they were all dressed in white, traditional Korean folk outfits. Their faces were painted in white. They looked like ghosts, but most striking about this, 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 this scene was how they were all moaning and crying and pain and misery. It was the, the pain being expressed. It was, it was frightening. It was deep. It was unconsolable. And I imagine the howling of hell will be a little bit like that scene of these mothers who had lost their children. In hell, the volume of the damned crying and howling misery will be deafening. Hell is hot and hell is loud, James says. And so when you're being oppressed by your, the rich and the powerful, there, there really is no need for our sinful anger. It is irrelevant. It is almost unnecessary in light of what is going to happen for those who oppress you. That our feelings and thoughts of revenge are unnecessary because there is nothing you and I could possibly do to equal the vengeance of God that will be, be performed on your behalf. James tells us in verse 2 and 3 that on that day, all of the security of the rich, all that their hopes and dreams were built upon, will be already rotted through from an eternal perspective. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasures in the last days. The judgment that awaits the rich and powerful, it is right at the door. The evidence of the guilt is already in the courtroom of our heavenly judge waiting for them. And James speaks metaphorically in these two verses. He's saying the riches, they're already rotted through. What you've built your life upon, it's as worthless as rotten milk. All your designer clothes, it's it's filled with the, the holes made by moths. Your, your gold and silver, it's rusted. And, and of course, gold and silver can't rust. But the idea is that to God, it, it's just worthless. It's like it's like scrap metal. Your wealth has no value in eternity. All of your riches and sil- all of your gold and silver is worthless to God. So why would you throw your life away for a piece of molded bread, why would you go to hell for clothes eaten by moths? Why would you give up your soul for a heap of scrap metal? And from a heavenly perspective, all of our security has rotted, but it's worse than that. It's worse than that. On the Day of Judgment, the, these, the wealth of the rich will not only not be an asset, it will be the very evidence of the greed that is used to convict them forever. The corrosion of this gold and silver will be, verse 3, a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire for eternity. Forever you will remember the reason why you're in hell. James ends verse 3 with the statement, you have stored up such treasure in the last days. What's 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 worse about all of your wealth is that we're in the last days and Jesus is about to return. You have the wrong priorities. And there's this image of these rich accumulating wealth in the last days and that's particularly sinful, because they are utterly disregarding the witness of the church about the imminence of Christ's return. As we go to the world, as we tell them that Christ is about to come, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the rich instead pretend like they'll always have their wealth, like their their wealth is generational when the beginning of the end is already here. And even though this passage is written about unbelievers, about their wealth for the comfort of us, these lessons about riches, earthly gold and silver, they're helpful for us too because we need to be careful about how our material possessions and and, and how we relate to them because our possessions tend to focus our thoughts and interests on this world only. Wealth can gradually and slowly enslave those who are attached to it. Wealth can pervert our values. The more you have, the, the easier it is to be possessed by our possessions and our comforts and our recreations. When you get a raise, when you get a substantial salary increase, um, most of us, our, our, our gut reaction is how much more we can spend and what we can buy and how much more security we think we'll have. Wealth often does that to us. James makes a second accusation toward the rich in verse 4. And that leads us to our second point of the morning. The, ju- the Lord will judge the rich for robbing the poor, verse 4. Verse 4 says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been held by you cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of, of Sabaoth oath. I remember reading a, an accounting book a few—I uh, uh, don't know—ten years ago, fifteen years ago—about uh, how business owners have an ethical responsibility to take care of their employees. It was a secular book, so I w- and I was really surprised that he said that because it, it was—it was such a rare, a rare experience for me. I've never felt like an employer was really taking care of my needs and thinking about my personal responsibilities, but that in fact is a scriptural mandate, that employers are required to make sure their employees are taken care of. They must provide a fair wage for those who work for them. That concern for the livelihood of, their, of your employees must factor into the, into the equation when you are dealing with your workers. And Paul, speaking about the church's responsibility to, to pay their pastors, he says this, In 1 Timothy 5, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. So he's saying, church, you need to care for your pastors because there are scriptural principles. The first principle is found in the Old Testament. You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. If you have an ox, it's working hard for you. You need to Take care of your ox. You need to feed him. You need to give him water to drink. Another principle, the laborer is is worthy of his wages. And so this, the idea that, the the idea is this. If if employers have the responsibility to fairly deal with their employees, that same biblical responsibility applies to churches for their pastors. And we live in a free market society. We live in, in a a capital capitalistic society and capitalism in case you don't in case you don't know it's the idea that an economy works best freely when individuals motivated by their own self-interest manufacture and distribute limited resources and goods throughout society in the most efficient manner possible and i think Uh, History bears that out, by the way. I'm pro-capitalist, I'm I'm pro-free market. Uh, Even when self-interest turns to greed and abuse, the free market is the best uh, earthly regulator of that greed. If a greedy store owner charges $10 for a carton of eggs, a competitor motivated by profit can charge eggs for $3 and put the greedy store owner out of business. And I think God, in his common grace, uses Capitalism to bless people in the widest of ways. Uh, when, selfish, selfish, well, when self-interest turns to greed, God can use that greed for the economic benefit of the rest of society. But God, using evil, doesn't mean he condones that evil. Just because employers can get away with ripping off their employees does not, doesn't mean that it's not sinful capitalism cannot justify hoarding wealth. And even in capitalism, the market takes time. It takes years. It takes decades, even a lifetime, to adjust and correct abuses within the system. And meanwhile, you're out of a job struggling to put food on your table. CEOs can rip off their employees by the misuse of company assets we saw recently in the news a prominent bitcoin company go under business because of his lavish style and his greed companies can go under because of the greed in free markets you can lose all your stock options and in a a startup that's really all you have and meanwhile ceos have their offshore secret accounts to run to there are small businesses who do everything they can to pay you the least amount of money for the most amount of work to the most desperate people because they know the supply of workers far far exceeds their demand for employment after a few years when your salary exceeds an acceptable amount you're pushed out for a younger worker who can do the same work for an entry level salary many of it in our country in the last few years lost their employment because they didn't take an experimental vaccine here they were, they were serving their country, they were working for their city, and then bureaucrats at the top who could care less about you and your families, they kicked you to the curb. And so, what do you do when your supervisors, when your mayors, when your governors, when your president, those responsible to take care of you and protect you and serve you, what do you do when they do the opposite? How do you respond when the rich and powerful treat you unjustly? And verse 4 gives us some encouragement. Verse 4 gives us some comfort. And James in verse 4, he he levels the second accusation against the rich and powerful. And the charge is this. The rich have robbed the poor. He says in verse 4, Behold, James is, is highlighting that the hoarded treasures of one through three have come from the, the backs of the poor, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, the those who did the harvesting. They have bankro- bankrolled the lifestyle of the rich and the corrupt. See in this period, there was an increasing concentration of land that fell into the hands of small group, a small group of wealthy landowners. The rich and, and they were the only industry in town. The rich owned the courts, they were in bed with government authorities. They were the judges. They were the leaders of these towns. And, and these corrupt landowners had the audacity that they thought they could cheat their workers out of their pay. pay. and they thought they could do this all in secret. Nobody of consequence would know. Where could the poor go for recourse? Where could they go for for justice? They knew that finding a higher authority or a higher power who could hold them accountable was not a reality. Look at verse 4. It's sad because it says, The outcries of those who did the harvesting. The harvesting is already over. The, the, the landowners already they have the money to pay their workers. How do you feel when the rich and powerful walk all over you? What do you do when your president picks uh, uh, officials to terminate your careers for refusing to violate your conscience? What do you do when the courts all agree? You can be tempted to get angry. You can, te- you can be tempted to feel hopeless. Like you're alone in the world. When we're in those moments, and then when, when we're in those circumstances, we can feel less than human, like, like we're animals, like we're a piece of garbage. James says in verse 4, however you feel in those circumstances, know and believe this truth. Your cries, verse 4, have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, Not only will the rich and powerful not get away with their oppression, this injustice has reached the desk of the most powerful being in the universe. And the imagery we see reminds us of Abel's blood crying out to God for justice. The Lord of the Sabaoth, he knows what's going on. Perfect justice is coming, and there's no court in the world, there's no lawyer anywhere who can come close to getting the kind of justice God will accomplish when Christ returns. Perfect justice is coming to right every wrong. This this title of God, the Lord of Sabaoth, Sabaoth is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Sabaoth, and that, 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 that Hebrew word Sabaoth means hosts, Or the Lord of hosts, and hosts means armies. The Lord of armies. James doesn't bother to translate the Hebrew word into a Greek word that means armies. He just spells the Hebrew word with Greek letters that sounded just like the Hebrew. And so this idea is that your cries of injustice have reached the Lord of armies. The Lord of the military the Lord of these uh, angelic warriors about to come, about to arrive. So don't be discouraged. That day could be tonight. That day could be tomorrow. It could be next week. Any day now. In Revelation 6.10, the Christian martyrs, they cry out, how long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer, God says, is a little bit, a little bit longer. Justice is coming. God, he doesn't have to save everybody. God, in fact, doesn't save every, any, everybody. And so we praise God for the grace that sinners don't deserve, and we praise God when he shows justice sinners who fully deserve it and we should pray for our persecutors while being comforted at the same time by the reality that if God never answers your prayers for their salvation he will accomplish perfect justice on your behalf your cries have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth we find a third accusation in verse 5 and point number 3 the Lord will judge the rich for living self indulgently The third accusation is that the rich live in luxury, they live in pleasure. And living in luxury isn't evil per se, but the context of the verse before this one in verse 5 suggests uh, that such abundance was accompanied by a a heart, an attitude of uh, of being uncaring, of being unloving, of being indifferent towards others. And notice in verse 5, James says that you have lived luxuriously on the earth. On the earth. He's implying that there's a contrast waiting for you in in eternity. You've lived this way on the earth, but when Christ comes, you will no longer live that way. There will be a total reversal. You've lived in self-indulgence, verse 5. And then he says this in verse 5. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Again, James references the day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh, when he returns at the end of history to redeem his people, to establish his kingdom, and to punish his enemies. Go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah des- describes, describes this, this day like... Like, uh, like Isaiah did. And Zephaniah, if you go, it's probably four, if, if Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, you go back uh, three more books, Zechariah, or two more books, Zechariah, Haggai, and then you'll find Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2. sorry, Zephaniah chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1, 14 through 18. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. The prophet says, Near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly, Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh! In it the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury is that day, A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the fury of Yahweh. And the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Go back to verses 7 and 8. talks about this, this sacrifice that Yahweh will prepare on that day. Verse 7 and 8. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh, For the day of Yahweh is near. For Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has set apart his guests. The sacrifice are his enemies. Verse 8, Then it will be on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish, punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Sacrifice are the rich. Sacrifice are the... Are the, are the powerful. And that's what James is talking about when he, when he, when he calls this de- day the day of slaughter. It's the day of, of sacrifice. And it's a direct quote from Jeremiah. And I'll go to Jeremiah. and that, It's a direct quote from uh, Jeremiah chapter 12. Turn there, J- Jeremiah chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 3, and... And of course Jeremiah is talking about how God will judge the the rich and the powerful. In Jeremiah he's confused, he's tempted to envy those of his his oppressors, he's tempted to to want their status and their power and authority. He's confused. Why do you allow this to happen to your people? Chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would speak matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked succeeded? Why are all those who deal in treachery complacent? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their inmost being. But you, O Yahweh, you know me, you see me. You test my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. These verses describe the sacrifices of lambs on the altar in the temple. Only the sacrifices here are the sacrifices of the rich and powerful. In other words, in other words, your rich and powerful perpetrators are going to have their throats cut open. They're going to be cut and cut up in pieces. They're going to be burned in fire because that's exactly how you sacrifice lambs on the altar. And this judgment is imminent. It's around the corner. It's the next event on God's timeline. And meanwhile, the rich are selfishly They are ignorantly going around, accumulating wealth for themselves, wastefully spending it on their own pleasures when the last days have already come. When judgment could break out at any time, but instead of repenting, instead of seeking Christ for grace and mercy to avoid that judgment, by their selfish indulgence, the rich are incurring greater and greater guilt like cattle being fattened in a day of slaughter. How does this day of slaughter encourage us who are under their punishing hand? A month ago, Josiah Graman made this point at the Shepherd's Conference as he was preaching on Zephaniah, and he, he gave the illustration. Imagine somebody, you're at, at the supermarket, and some uh, mean person insults your wife, curses curses at her in front of your kids and then you kind of manage to control your your anger and then you see the same person in the parking lot and then this 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 mean person cuts you off they honk at you repeatedly and you're right there and you're tempted to say something incredibly mean you want vengeance but you know that in in 10 minutes, somehow, you know the same person is going to get hit by a truck and die as his car is engulfed in flames. See, if you knew that about 10 minutes into the future about their predicament, how would you then feel when you're being mistreated by the person? You would actually feel pity. You would feel compassion. Instead of anger and vengeance... You would be able to endure it. And then the Grahman, Josiah Grahman, said this: every unbeliever who hurts you will face the wrath of the Lord Yahweh, and knowing that frees us from the desire for payback. That frees us from the desire for vengeance. James is doing that for us here. He's saying, knowing the fate of the rich and powerful who, who oppress you, knowing their future should temper our anger. Knowing what is going to happen to them should squelch our desire for vengeance and instead be replaced by a heart of mercy and compassion. And it is this recognition of their future that should be the impetus with the power to love our enemies and to pray for their salvation. The last accusation is found in verse 6 of James chapter 5. And the fourth and final charge aimed at the rich and powerful is they have condemned and murdered the righteous man. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. James has accused the rich of hoarding wealth in verses 2 and 3, of cheating, their, cheating workers in verse 4, of living self-indulgently in verse 5. And now, in the climax of his denunciation, he accuses them of condemning and murdering the righteous man. And this idea of, of being condemned by the rich is somehow related to something judicial. The rich somehow cheated the poor out of, out of their land. They have taken away gainful employment. They have refused to pay their fair wage. And and they've done it all through the corruption of justice. And now the poor are in the danger of starving to death. And then this last statement ends with this majestic pathos. He does not resist you. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever kind of evil to him, however long. He does not resist you. These poor believers, they do not have the means to resist the rich and powerful in their lifetimes. They are helpless that way. The poor cannot do anything, and this is the point. The helplessness of these victims increased the damnation of the rich. He does not resist you. And therefore, when God comes to achieve perfect justice, you're in trouble. And it should be the powerlessness of God's people that should terrify the wealthy. So we don't need to be angry when When the world oppresses us, we we need to feel sorry for them instead, right? To pray for them, to warn them, the day of the Lord is coming. To tell them, you can find refuge in Christ, and we can find peace. That if salvation never comes if Christ never atones for the wrath of God against the sins of the rich against you, we can find encouragement that perfect justice will balance all the scales in the end and that perfect justice will satisfy us.